The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. So uh, while the band's getting off, I'll tell you an anecdote. Uh, so last service, uh, Tanner uh, got trapped in the closet, R. Kelly style, uh, for the whole message. So he went to go fix something in there, and I started preaching, and he didn't want to walk across the back of the stage while I was flapping my lips, so he just stayed there the whole time. So so wanted to give him the moment there. Um, awesome. You're welcome, brother. Uh, well, and uh, once again, for those of you who haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Gabe, and I'm blessed to be uh, the, the pastor here at this church. And for those of you that, that come here regularly, uh, many of you have already told me that you didn't recognize me because I was, I was wearing a suit. Uh, and, and the reality is uh, my mom's in town, and so, you know. You got to look nice for mom, right? Uh, but, uh, but it is a, a joy to, to be with you all this Christmas Eve and to, to celebrate the birth of our, our Savior Jesus. Uh, for, for those of you who have been a part of our church for the last few weeks and those of you that are maybe here for the first time, we've been in a series called For the Love. And what we've been doing in this series is recognizing that at Christmas time, uh, that, that God sent Jesus into our life and that in the birth of Jesus, we see God's love on display for us. And so the question we've been asking the last four weeks is how does that ripple into the rest of our relationships to our, our friendships and our romantic relationships and our familial relationships? How does, how does Jesus' love for us at his birth ripple into that? But tonight, man, it's Christmas Eve, and so we're just going to focus on the first part of that idea, that we see God's love in the birth of Jesus. We see God's love in the birth of Jesus. That's it. But what we see in our text for tonight, in Luke chapter 2, that Pastor Barrett read for us, we see uh, sort of three truths come out about God's love for us in the birth of Jesus. And and here's what they are. First of all, we're going to see that God's love comes humble. Secondly, that it's in humility we must receive it. And then thirdly, that it's real, that it matters, okay? So God's love comes humble. It's in humility that we must receive it and that it's real. It really matters, all right? Uh, so let's get going. God's love comes humble. God's love comes humble. So uh, uh, about, uh, about a week ago, my, my little son turned three, and it, it uh, gave me time to pause and reflect. And I was thinking back on three years ago, the day he was born, uh, and I remember it really well, and I remember holding him, and, and I remember uh, handing him to the nurse, and the nurse took him from me, and she said, hey, so, so what's his name? And I said, it's, it's Titus Jacob Casper. And she said, wow, it's a strong name. And then she looked down at him, all six pounds, 12 ounces of him. She said, looks like he's going to have to grow into it. And uh, and, and she was right, right? And, and he's still growing into it. But, but I remember Melissa and I talking about it, and we really wanted to give him a strong name because we know there's a lot of weight behind names, that names carry a lot of weight. And we, and we see this in our text, the beginning of our text, verses 1 and 2, give us a very weighty name. If you guys look with me, we'll have it up on the screen here. It says this, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. All right, so in this text, Luke, who's the author of the Gospel of Luke, uh, he sets up the Christmas story. He sets up the birth of Jesus, and, and, and look who he says, look what name he says gets the ball rolling for this whole thing. Verse 1 says, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Now think about this. Luke could have set this story up any way he wanted to. He could have done it any way he wanted to. 
But he chooses to tell us who the current emperor of Rome was at that time. He says he issued a decree. Now, it's no accident that he does this. See, what Luke's doing is he's setting up a contrast for us to see here. And and here's how it works. See, first of all, Caesar, of course, you all know that's the title for the emperor of Rome. Uh, But the word Augustus, it means the exalted one, right? That's a literal way to read that. So, So it says here, Caesar, the exalted one, issued a decree. And that sounds like a mouthful already, but the original readers of Luke's gospel would have known that Luke's actually condensing Caesar's name. That Caesar's name at this point in history was Imperator Kaiser Divi Filius Augustus, which loosely translated in English means Emperor Caesar, Son of God, the Exalted One. And so what Luke's cluing us into here in just this first verse is that to the naked eye, the one in charge the one calling the shots, the one issuing decrees, the Son of God at this point in history is Caesar, the exalted one. He's the one in charge of an empire that spans from Spain to the Middle East. He's the one who's bringing about the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, a peace that comes by crushing absolutely anyone who opposes you. There's even propaganda at that time that said, Caesar is Lord and Savior. And so Luke wants us to see, hey, when Caesar issues a decree, you follow it. And that's exactly what happens in our text today. Look with me at verses 4 to 5. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who is with child. And so because they live in a land that's conquered by Rome, Joseph and his nine-month pregnant fiance, Mary, have to take an 85-mile trek from Nazareth to Bethlehem. They're not issuing any decrees, right? They're following them at great risk to themselves. I just think of Mary, like I remember when my wife Melissa was pregnant with both our kids, like she hit like 30 weeks and I didn't even want to go to the grocery store, you know? Like I can't imagine an 85-mile trek on foot, nine months pregnant. What we're supposed to see here is that Mary and Joseph, they don't have a choice, right? Because Joseph's just a carpenter. He's not Caesar. He's not the exalted one. He's just Joe. And so he's got to go. And so we begin to see the contrast that Luke is setting up, right? There are those with power who are issuing decrees, and there are those with no power who have to follow them. But Luke actually points the contrast even further. I don't know if you caught this, but verse 5, it says, with Mary, his betrothed, which is another way of saying, like, his fiance. So, so he's not traveling with his pregnant wife. He's traveling with his pregnant fiance. And in that culture at this, that time, this child would have been called a mamzer, a child who's, who's born outside of, of non-married parents. And a mamzer is a very cruel word. Every language has one for it, and they're all ugly. And if Joseph had been Roman, truth be told, if Joseph had been Roman instead of Jewish, probably would have taken part in this ancient practice called exposure which is when an illegitimate or unwanted child was just left at a dump or a dunghill to die. But fortunately, because of his faith, Joseph opposed this barbaric practice. And we see this happen at at the end of the story that that, that Jesus is born. Look with me at Luke 2, 6-7. While they were there, 
the time came for the baby to be born. And so she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And so here we have it. This is kind of the final picture of contrast that those in power have made their demands and this oppressed young couple with their unborn son had to follow them. And so Jesus is then born in a stable and his crib is a feeding trough and his nursery mates have four legs and he's wrapped in rags. But to be honest, I think sometimes we can look at that and I can talk about it, but we have a hard time really picturing the, the extreme contrast that Luke is trying to show us in this picture, really trying to show us the radical nature of Jesus' birth. Uh, and so I just want to share with you a picture that a, that a friend of mine sent me this week in, in which there's an artist called Everett Patterson who tries to uh, depict the Christmas story uh, through a modern lens, and he calls it Jose y Maria. Uh, and I think it's an incredible picture. I've looked at it about uh, probably 10 times, and I find something new each time. But let me just point a few things out. So it's, I know it's tough to see, but there's a, there's a sign there that says Dave City Motel, which is like town of Bethlehem. Uh, there's no vacancy there. Um, Mary's wearing a Nazareth High School hoodie. Um, you got uh, one of the coolest things. Adam pointed this out to me, the guy who plays a little box over there. Uh, that the, the advertisements around their head look like halos like you see, kind of like in old school paintings. Uh, but I think it's, a, it's an amazing picture and really telling for us to kind of to, to grasp the, the picture that, that Luke is really trying to get us to see in the gospel. And so here's my point. We see in this picture and we see in this text is that God's love comes in humility. That God's love comes humble. Listen to these words from 1 John 4, verse 9. It says this, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. God shows his love among us by sending his Son into our world. That the manifestation of the God of the universe, the manifestation of his love is found in a poor, oppressed baby born to unwed parents in a barn, lying in rags in a feeding trough. Right? That's the irony of this whole passage. See, Luke sets us up to see that to the naked eye, Caesar is in charge. Caesar's the exalted one. Caesar's the son of God. He's the one we should pay attention to. But you and I both know that lying there, that baby in the manger, is in fact the true exalted one. That he's the actual son of the living God. That he is Lord and Savior and he's come to bring peace. And he doesn't do it by crushing those who oppose him. He does it by being crushed by those who oppose him. And ultimately he does it by being crushed for those who oppose him on the cross. You see, friends, the Christian story is that the God who created you and me, and absolutely everything we see and don't see. The Christian story is that that God actually became a man, that he put on flesh and blood, that he entered into history, into time and space as the person Jesus Christ. And when he came, he didn't come swinging a sword, cutting down anyone who was against him. He didn't come in as some untouchable holy man, giving us a list of impossible rules to follow. No, 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 no. He came as a little baby. He came in humility. And he did it because he loves us 
that much. The love of God comes in humility. And it's in humility we must receive it. Let me say that again. God's love came humbly. And it's in humility we must receive it. See, our text began with a guy who has one of the most arrogant names of all time, right? I shared it with you. Emperor Caesar, son of God, the exalted one. And historically, we know because of that arrogance, because of that pride, he misses out on the love of God. And it's easy for us on this side of history to look at that ancient uh, Roman emperor and say, oh, you fool. You arrogant fool. You missed out on the love of God. But the reality is our pride gets in the way of humbly receiving the love of God, too. It happens. Uh, Here's what I mean. Just a a few chapters later in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Jesus has grown up, and and he begins his ministry, and he's going out doing his thing. uh, And and he he, uh, comes across a man named Levi. And Levi is a tax collector, uh, which, of course, means that, that he was hated by the people around him. I know, you know, nowadays we all really love the IRS, so we can't relate. Um, but you know, no one ever laughs at that. I guess people really like the IRS. Uh, and uh, at anyways, but they, they really hated the tax collectors back in that day because they were an instrument of Rome. They were an instrument of Rome. Used, they, they, they took people from the people they conquered and used them to expre- exploit and oppress their own people. And Levi was one of these guys, and yet Jesus calls him to follow him anyways. And one of the most amazing things, I think, in, in the story happens is Levi's so blown away by Jesus' care for him. He's so humbled by Jesus' love for him that he says, hey, why don't you come over to my house? I'm having a party. I'm going to have some of the boys over. Why don't you come over to my house? And so Jesus goes, and he has dinner with Levi and a bunch of other tax collectors and sinful people, and, and a religious guy shows up. I love this part of the story. A religious guy shows up and says to Jesus, Hey, man, what, what are you doing? Why, why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answers him and he says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, now, Jesus' answer is brilliant, right? He says, oh, well, apparently you guys think you got it all together. You're super healthy. You got it all figured out, so I guess you don't need me. But guess what? These guys recognize they're sick. In their humility, they know they need a doctor. And guess what? I'm here. I'm going to heal them. Here's the thing, friends. And I know this may surprise you, but people, oftentimes religious people, we tend to forget that we're sick. We tend to forget that we're in need of a physician. Sometimes folks like you and I think, hey, I'm entitled to God's love. He kind of owes it to me. I'm a pretty great person, do a lot of good things. Kind of owes it to me. I got it coming. We forget, no, 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 no. We desperately need it. We've got to receive it humbly. God's love comes humbly. We must receive it humbly. And here's why we must receive it humbly. Here's why. Because the reality is this baby, Jesus Christ, born in such humble circumstances, what he does is he shows us that love actually matters. All love. But God's love in particular, that that it's real. That God's love is, is actually real. That it's not just a pipe dream. It's not just some sort of nice sentimental thought. But it's real. God's love is woven into the fabric of the universe. That's what this little baby born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago tells us. How's that work? Just think through this with me, all right? Let's just, let's just think through 
uh, the landscape of worldviews, all right, right now. So we got religious folks. So let's just talk about a couple different religious uh, ways of looking at the world. So you got some religions around the world that would say, hey, yeah, there's God, of course, uh, and, uh, but he's transcendent, meaning he's, he's beyond our understanding. He's beyond our capability to understand. And the only way we could know anything about this God or maybe even about his love is if a prophet chooses to reveal that to us. That's it, all right? So that's one idea. But then you got another group of people, religious folks, I would say, God's not transcendent. No, 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 no. God is imminent. God is imminent. He's, he's here. He's present. He's in the, the wind and the birds and the squirrels and kumbaya and my soul and love. And, and that God is, is here. And God then, of course, is purely subjective, right? So you got transcendent beyond us. You got subjective where everything is sort of based on my perception of him. So there's two options with God. And then, of course, there's folks in the third option that, that don't believe in any God, which then, of course, means that love, any love that you've ever experienced at all, is just in the words of the Nobel-winning scientist Francis Crick, I'm quoting him here, in fact, no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. That love, then, is just a chemical reaction that happens in your brain and nothing more. All right, so there's three options we've got. We've got God is transcendent. We can't know anything about him. We've got God is subjective, and everything we know about him just comes from my own personal experience of him. And then we've got there's no God, and everything we know and experience is just an accidental byproduct of a very, very long process. Now think about that in the context of love. If you were to actually think about it, none of these options give us a satisfying answer to the source of love, to whether or not it's real, to whether or not it's connected to anything outside of myself, to whether or not it's connected to anything that matters in the end. None of those answers that question. But this little baby, Jesus, born 2,000 years ago, he actually does. He actually does. How does that work? How does that work? Cur Deus Homo. That's how it works. Cur Deus Homo, which is Latin for why the God-man. This is the question the early Christians were asked and the questions that early Christians wrestled with, why would God become man? Why would this happen? Why would Christmas happen? Well, here's why. See, this little baby we celebrate at Christmas, Jesus Christ, he is the Son of God. What that means, what we understand that to mean as Christians, is that he's been with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit from eternity. That God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit from eternity have been in a loving relationship with one another. And it was out of that love that they created everything we see, everything we know. And so in other words, for us as Christians, at the center of the universe is a God who is in himself love and who created us to know his love. And I say that and someone says, okay, prove that. That was a nice thought, but prove that. How, how do you know that that's true? You said those other answers weren't satisfying. How is this answer any different? Look with me again at 1 John 4, 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. He sent his son into the world. This world, the, this one right here. Sent his son into the world. That makes all the difference. See, here's how that works. Uh, back in the day, there was a, a Soviet cosmonaut, and, uh, and he went up to, spate, up to space, as uh, cosmonauts do, 
and uh, went up, did his thing, and then came back down, and, and he had a press conference. And the Soviet cosmonaut gets up at the press conference, and he says this. He says, I've been to the heavens, and I didn't find God up there. And this was, of course, during the, the Cold War. And so this was kind of atheistic communism's little, like, jab at the West, like, you fools, look, I was up there, and there was no God. Hardy, har, har. But the, the great philosopher, uh, C.S. Lewis, was alive at the time, and, and, and he responded to that. He wrote a little essay and, and sent it to this guy. And in the essay, he says to this cosmonaut, he says, hey, that's, I, I guess you can look at it that way. But he said, think about it. He says, basically, man, you're Hamlet, right? So Shakespeare play Hamlet. It's like, you're a character in Hamlet. You're Hamlet. And basically, all you've done is like Hamlet climbing to the top of a tower in the play and saying, I see no Shakespeare up here. Therefore, Shakespeare does not exist. That's silly. That's stupid. How would Hamlet know Shakespeare? The only way for Hamlet to know Shakespeare is if Shakespeare were to write himself into the story. Friends, this is Christmas. That in the person of Jesus Christ, God writes himself into the story. That you might know him. That you might know his love for you. See, the transcendent God became imminent. That the the infinite God, the God outside time and space, became finite. He became present. He became tangible. He became something you could see with your eyes. This is Christmas. And he did that, that you might know him. That you might know his love for you. See, God's love came humbly as a baby that first Christmas. And that baby grew up, and Jesus went to the cross, and he paid the price for your sins. And he did that so you might know the love of God both now and forever. And he invites you to humbly receive that love today. And won't you do that? Won't you do that? God's love came humbly. It's real. It's for you. Humbly receive it today. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for sending your son Jesus. We thank you that you wrote yourself into the story. That we can know you. That we can know your love for us. God, I pray for friends of mine here who are wrestling with questions of faith, who are trying to figure stuff out, who aren't sure if you're real or not. God, I pray you'd make yourself real to them. That your spirit would be at work in their hearts, that they would cling to you with hope. They'd know that you've sent Jesus for them. God, may he be real to them this Christmas. Be with us all as we go from this place. Pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at axechurchleander.com.